Hello friends, so it's been a couple of weeks, but we're getting ready to enter into the third and final installment of looking at quotes by Margaret Mead, an anthropologist, and I would argue a philosopher um, who wrote many things, um, and some of her reflections directly relate to my own field, the field of education. So grab your tea or coffee. I'm actually going with coffee this time around since I'm recording in the afternoon. <clears throat> All right, we're going to look at about four, maybe five quotes. So here's the first one. I learned the value of hard work by working hard. Let me read that one again. I learned the value of hard work by working hard. I think that a quote like this sounds very idealistic, and I could definitely see a lot of older people like myself in the 40 and up age range nodding their heads, saying, yes, yes, you learn the value of hard work by doing hard work, and the sort of thing that you might say to a younger person. But I don't know that just because you work hard does not necessarily mean that you're going to learn the value of it. Because if you're working hard at the wrong thing, then you're not really going to get much value from that. For example, if you have a drug addiction and maybe you work really hard at that drug addiction, you know, I don't know. Um, okay, it's kind of a dumb one. Let me think. Okay, say that same child that throws a tantrum. If you've ever seen some of those robust children throwing very exciting, let's use that word, exciting tantrums inside of a store because they did not get their way, then, or perhaps they're just overtired or overstimulated and having a meltdown, they are putting a lot of work into that fit or tantrum that they are throwing. There's a lot of hard work in there. But I don't know that you would necessarily argue that there is value in it, because even then it depends on the parent's response, right? For my children, the few times they threw tantrums or fits in public, we just left, and they did not get what they wanted. So if anything, they became more upset. But that hard work did not pay off. So I would argue that you could learn, I would rewrite this as, you learn the value of hard work by working hard at the right things. And even that is subjective, but, or I guess maybe, hmm, maybe if you worked hard at the things that you valued, you would learn to value hard work. How about that? If you work hard on something that you value, you will find value in hard work. So, for example, if there is a TV show that you really want to watch, but it doesn't show in the United States. So you work really hard to find a way to get your hands either on a copy of that piece of media or you find a way to change your VPN numbers so that you can access that piece of media. Either way, you're working hard to gain something that you value so you find value in that hard work. So the next time you encounter a gap between 
your resources and what you want, you're going to be willing to put that hard work in because you value hard work when you are working on something that you value. All right, I think it's probably enough of that one. All right, let's look at the next quote. Sister is probably the most competitive relationship within the family, but once the sisters are grown, it becomes the strongest relationship. I am guessing since she, the first time she simply says sister, but then she says sisters. So I'm guessing that she's referring to a relationship between two sisters versus the relationship between a sister and a brother. So that being said, never having been a pair, part of a pair of sisters myself, I don't know that I can comment on that. Um, I am... So I'm probably going to move past that one, but that's the thing she said. I don't know what your thoughts are. Though, actually, upon reflection, when I look at my own siblings, out of the six of us, there are two of, two of the sisters who do have probably the closest bond out of all the sibling relationships that I can see. So I will say, from observation only, that does seem to ring true, at least within my own family. But I would not be able to speak to any other families. All right, so I'm going to move on to the next quote. Every time we liberate a woman, we liberate a man. Every time we liberate a woman, we liberate a man. Hmm. I don't know if it's necessarily a one-for-one ratio, but I definitely do believe that if both genders in our society are equally given opportunities to do all they can do, then I, I do believe that all of society benefits. You know, so like to, for example, to tell a woman that she cannot start her own business because she's a woman is a bit ridiculous in my opinion. If that woman is able to successfully launch and operate and run a business, then she's going, that's going to help our economy. So liberating her to own property and run a business helps all of us. So again, I don't know that I would say it's a one-for-one ratio, but I do believe that both genders benefit by giving equal opportunities to women. And I, you know, I believe that that is possible without degrading men. I don't think that the role of men has to be eliminated or reduced. I believe that it is possible for manliness to still exist in our society while allowing women to truly become all that they are as well. And I know that often it is viewed as kind of a zero-sum game by, by certain people that as if, well, if you make it equal, then the role of men dwindles and men have to rediscover what masculinity means. And my to that, I would argue that what it means to be a man was already lost before women's liberation. I believe that as soon as it became about subjugating one of the two genders, that both were in their own way suffering. Women were obviously suffering more, but the concept of what a man is 
had already become eroded as soon as it became man, boss of woman. So I think that, yeah, so I don't, anyway, so those are my thoughts there on that kind of a ramble. I don't, I didn't really flush all of that out. I think that there is a lot that I don't know when it comes to the history of gender roles within our own country and around the world. I know enough to know that there is a lot that I don't know. It's probably the best way to put it. And I've definitely spent more time studying the roles of men and masculinity in different cultures than I have studying the roles of women in different cultures, mainly because as a young man myself, I was trying to figure out what did it mean to be a man and what did it used to be a what did it used to mean to be a man compared to what we consider it meaning to be a man now. You know, things like rites of passage and were they helpful or were they harmful? I think they I think they could be both depending on how they're administrated. You know, but I think that the lack of clear rites of passage has not been healthy for our society. But again, that's just my opinion. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Next quote. I do not believe in using women in combat because females are too fierce. I do not believe in using women in combat because females are too fierce. I don't think that this was meant to be taken literally. I don't know that she literally believes that women are too fierce to be included in combat, or if this was simply a part of a larger discussion of the strength of women. So I feel like without context for this quote, I'm not really able to speak on it. Um, my personal opinion of women in combat is if they are able to fulfill the requirements necessary to become a soldier, then by all means, go for it. But um, again, as far as being able to comment on this quote specifically, without understanding the context in which she was speaking, I would not be able to answer this one. So we're going to move on to the final quote, which says, I must admit that I personally measure success in terms of the contributions an individual makes to her or his fellow human beings. And I'm going to read it one more time. I must admit that I personally measure success in terms of the contributions an individual makes to her or his fellow human beings. Agree 100%. I really do. I, I think that there are other ways to measure success, but I think that that is an excellent way to measure success in terms of the contributions that you make to others. So often we view success in terms of money um, or possessions. You know, a lot of times if I look up success and motivation on Instagram or watch maybe a motivational video on YouTube, Often when they're showing success, what success looks like, it's nice clothes, beautiful car. Often these are geared towards men, so they show, you know, a beautiful woman nearby. In fact, if you look up motivational quotes on like Instagram or even Pinterest, oftentimes it's a picture, an image of a beautiful woman, 
in maybe a tiny dress or skirt and then some quote about success and hard work as though to tell young men, I'm sure it's mostly geared towards young men, that if you work really, really hard, you make a lot of money and a woman like this would be interested in you, which I think is very dangerous and very damaging. One, to how we train young men to view women. And then two, that's, there's more, that's not all life is. So, now of course it's easy for me to say I am not a person who has ever made a ton of money, so I don't know what that version of success looks like. I can't speak to that. I've never been in a place where I could buy whatever I wanted to or be able to drive high-powered, amazing cars. So, that I will say that I am, I am limited in my viewpoint. However, I am in a profession where... Profession, sorry where I make a lot of personal contributions and I am told by those that I serve that my contributions to them, their families or to their children are very important. So I guess I am a little biased in my agreement there because I am in a profession where I'm directly working with children and teaching and educating them and preparing them for their futures. I am a little biased towards any profession that has a human component like that. That is not to say that if you are in a manufacturing job or in a sales job or a job where you may not directly interact with the person who is benefiting from your work, I don't want to take away from that contribution at all because, for example, I am recording this podcast on my iPad and I am so thankful and blessed by the people who designed this product. I am blessed by the people who designed the app that I am using, I am blessed by the people that all the people who've done the work that enables me to sit here in my living room and share my thoughts with you. So their contribution, so those people did make a contribution to another human being who is in turn able to contribute in other ways because of that, the computer that I have that I use for teaching and for lesson planning. Right? The people who designed that computer, that designed the keyboard, that designed the mouse that I use, they're all making a contribution, even though they don't see it. So I would, so I would, while I still firmly agree with this, I would also encourage those who may not necessarily get to directly see the results of their actions to know they are making a contribution. And in some ways, as a teacher, I don't get to see the ultimate the end of my contribution for most students. Rarely have I been, the students that I first taught, you know, six years ago who are now adults, very, very few of them, in fact, really only one or two of them, am I aware of what's going on in their lives now? And I'm not even entirely certain that what I did is still making an impact. But we can hope, can't we? All right, friends, so that is the end of our Margaret Mead quotes. I'm thinking of moving on to a different philosopher because I have really enjoyed this, and it has really helped guide the conversation. So we're going to end here for now. It's time for your next adventure. I'll miss you.